Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Hey, it's Wendy. You're probably anxious to hear the second half of Mike's interview with Susan Messino, so I'll try to keep this quick. I just wanted to mention, first and foremost, that if you haven't already listened to part one of this interview, you can find it at episode four of See You on the Other Side. Next, I just want to thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. Um, It's brand new, and we've been celebrating by releasing a lot of episodes, one per day, since we launched it on Halloween. Uh, So... Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. I hope you like it. And if you do like it, it would be wonderful if you could leave us a little review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you listen to it on, or even just send us an email. But um, if you do leave us a review, please include your Twitter name or just your first name so we can give you a shout out in one of the upcoming episodes. So without further ado, here's Mike and Susan with some more cool stories about rockers and ghosts and... Well, I won't ruin it all. Just enjoy. Well, who would you say, I mean, w- that you've like had a supernatural uh, up, positive, that they came in, they lifted the room, they, um, you know, who had that, a presence that you, you think might be even unearthly that kind of sticks with you? Oh, God, that would be Bon Scott. He, he, was, he was an angel that was only here for a certain time and... And now he's gone and uh, talked about every day. I mean, he was he was always, even though he drank, he I I never saw him, you know. And and I didn't spend you know I didn't spend days on end with him. But I never saw him so drunk that he couldn't talk or you know he was staggering around or anything like that. He just you know he was he was a drinker, but he was always funny. He was always like when he walked into the room, you knew he was there. And he would always eat, like the band played off of him, you know, they, they definitely followed his, in his footsteps of how to be, you know, he was um, friendly to everybody, you know, he hung out with the roadies, he'd party with the fans after the show, he, and, and if he wasn't making you laugh, he wasn't happy. Okay. And he was just, he was a ray of light. He really was. And, I, you know, now that I've researched him and written about him, I didn't realize that he was having problems toward the end that I wish I would have known. He was lonely. He was having trouble. He was on the road for so many years. I mean, by the time he died, including the bands before ACDC, he had been on the road for 13 years. Wow. So he was, he was worn out. He was tired. And and I didn't realize that because he didn't show that when he was around. When he walked in the room, oh, my God, you know, I mean, big smile, you know, making a joke, trying to make you laugh, you know, tripping over something, spilling something, you know, whatever it took to make people laugh. Well, it sounds like he was really a larger than life. I mean, he, he was, a, I mean, larger than life. He wasn't that big of a guy, right? But yeah. <laughs> a, the, his character was just... Uh, and his soul was, you know, bigger than the room. Oh, God, yeah. And, and you know, even to this day, I just said this uh, the other night, um, it, when I see ACDC, I just saw them four times on the Black Ice Tour, but, you know, now it's been four years. But 
Uh, I hadn't seen him in seven years since the stiff upper lip tour, mm-hmm. and that's one of the first things we talk about is bun. When I hang out with Angus and Malcolm, that's what we talk about is bun because everybody still misses him, and he's still a big part of the show. I mean, half of the songs they play, he wrote the lyrics to. And it's, you know, it's amazing. And and what's so sweet, I mean, Brian is probably one of the, Brian Johnson's probably one mm-hmm. of the biggest Scott fans on the planet. And he loves singing his songs. And, and at the end of the, the show, when they do their encore, one of it is, one of the songs is Highway to Hell. And they show a picture behind the band of the band with Bon. And he just, he's always there. You know, he's been gone for so many years, but he's always there, and, and everybody always talks about him. And um, have, you know, when you guys did the, uh, when you did Let There Be Rock, you know, and you did, and I'm sure you draw on, you drew on your own experiences, and you, you know, you must have interviewed a thousand people coming up the story of ACDC. Mm-hmm. Um, did you ever get any, you know, stories that people had about, Bon after he was gone. Any, you know, any feelings or, I mean, obviously he is well remembered by not only the band, but by everybody loves Bon Scott songs. <laughs> they, you know, yeah. I don't know anybody that's like, hey, see, forget it. Um, but did you ever hear anything where they were like, well, we were recording this, like we felt Bon in the room or, you know, or anything, any, any well, par- paranormal stuff related to him? Well, definitely. I mean, uh, only do I, you know, I, I have dreams about Bon, um, and people talk about him all the time. They, you know, they do feel him when they record and when they're on tour. And uh, Brian Johnson, who hasn't really talked about it till recently, he used to allude to it, but now he, you know, he actually said that when they went down to the Bahamas to record Back in Black, and he had to write, you know, the lyrics, and the songs were set, the titles were set, the music was ready. He had to come up with the lyrics, and he was terrified. And there was a lot of storms. You know, there was a lot of thunderstorms down there. And he said one night he just sat up out of a dead sleep, just sat sat up and grabbed a bunch of paper and a pen and just wrote lyrics until they stopped coming. And and he said that it was it was definitely Bond was there, making sure that things were taken care of. Oh and, wow. Uh, yeah, and and you know, even before I got um before I met the publishers that hired me to do the book. And I I see Bon, you know, not often, but here and there he comes into my dreams and uh this was so vivid one night I dreamed he was here. He came to my house and we sat and we talked for hours and we laughed and we joked and, you know, it was just a really great dream. And when I woke up the next day, I, I felt really sad because I'm like, God, you know, that seems so real. And why, you know, why now? And, and why did it have to feel that real? Because it was, it was painful to realize it wasn't, wasn't real. It was just a dream. Right. And the next day, um, uh, John, you know, my, my ex, uh, called me from work and you know I usually would stay up late and work and this was uh you know before I had the book deal I didn't even know about the book deal yet um and I couldn't remember what Bond told would talk to me about but now I'm pretty sure that's why he came to me to, to tell me to get ready for it but uh John called me the next day and he said um why did you leave that lamp on last night 
And I said, what lamp? And he, there was this big lamp that's over by the couch that's by my desk, but I never use it because it's really bright and I don't use those lights at night. Sure. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, when I got up today to go to work, that lamp was on. And, and I've had that lamp for over 20 years and it's never turned on by itself. So uh. it was kind of, it, 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 I, I laughed because it was Bond's way of saying, yeah, I was there. I was doubting it. And uh, it was kind of like, yeah, I was there. And then when I look back now, it's like he, and he did come to me during the writing of the book too, because I was super overwhelmed by it. Sure. Um, it, I covered 32 years at the time. I covered 32 years of history and I literally broke it down to a week at a time to make sure that I didn't miss anything. And uh, one night I totally had like a panic attack. I mean, we're full-blown, like, 3 o'clock in the morning, I can't do this. <laughs> well, that's 1,500 weeks. You know, that's that's a, that's a good yeah, deal that's of history. A, that's a lot of history. <laughs> and I just, I, I, I had a total breakdown that night, and I went to bed, and I prayed to Bon. I said, you have got to help me. I need help. I need something. I need somebody to help me get through this. And uh, he came to me in, in the dream that night, and he was, uh, we were in a kitchen in this house somewhere, and uh, he was dancing around, and he was making fun of me, and he was saying, oh, Susie, he said, it's going to be just fine. He said, don't worry about it, you know, and, and I said, I felt so bad that he had, he had died, you know, at 33, and he laughed, and he goes, oh, that was, that's my, that was my time to go. He said, it's fine. Everybody's fine. Everybody's fine. Look at me. He said, I look good, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> and he just, he just made me laugh. And then the next day when I woke up, I, I you know, honestly haven't had a, a panic attack like that since. I mean, it, he just really, he was there for me. And, uh, and he does. He comes in and out. And um, those, are, those are probably the most innocent nocturnal visits from Bon Scott ever. Oh yeah, I have no. He and I are like brother and sister. He he offered a few times, and I, I knew better to say no. <laughs> I wanted to keep it on a professional level, you know. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, and I could I could talk about ACDC, and I, I have a thousand questions for you about Hank Williams and 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 you know and with because with the South and country music, there's always superstitions and curses and things like that, but. Um, I do want to talk about your book a little bit uh, for the last stuff on the secrets of the universe. I want to ask you about synchronicity and if you had any tips for, um, you know, what's, how, do, how do you get yourself in the right place at the right time? Any tips or ideas or, or things that you found in your life um, that can, you found really useful for, for uh, finding that synchronicity? You know, for one thing, um, you know, I do talk about in uh, the second chapter, I think it's the second chapter, <laughs> you don't even know, um, about your chakras and your energy, you know, your God energy that comes down through you, and which is a white light. And I think that you need to keep that open and keep that around you at all times because we are electrical, you know, we are, um, we are energy, you know, mm -hmm. we are energy in a physical body. And the more you get in touch with that energy, I think it opens you up more to things. And, and like I said, I'm really good at, like, knowing when to do things, like like uh, maybe a phone call or a letter. 
um, I'll know what day to do it on. It'll be like, you know, well, not today, that's not a good day, and then, yep, today, today's the day to write that letter, or today's the day to pitch that book, or, or whatever, and um, I've just, I've always had that, and it's it's your gut instinct. It's like, you know, it comes from within, and, uh, you know, when people ask me, like, how do you make decisions on things, this is another way to, to use this kind of energy is when you have a choice of, like, A and B, you think about A and what does your stomach feel like? And then you think about B, what does your stomach feel like? And the one that feels lighter and feels less stressful or less scary, you go with that one because your, your, your inner self always guides you in the right direction, but you have to, to learn to listen to it. So a lot of people, you know, they get that stuff, they get those little things mm-hmm. and they just blow it off. You know, they're like, ah, whatever, you know, nah, you know, that's, that's silly. And, uh, I've had, you know, I've just, I've literally had great, you know, amazing things happen to me because I've had that, heard that voice say, you know, yeah, go make that call now or yeah, apply for that job go ahead, apply for that job. You'll get that job if you apply for it, you know, things like that. And, and, um, I just, I love synchronicity. I love numbers. Um, uh, numbers come up on license plates. They, you know, come up, uh, all over the place. I mean, it's almost comical. It's like almost, um, in Bruce Almighty with, uh, Jim Carrey, right. you know, where he's begging for a sign and he has a truck in front of him filled with signs, you know, road signs, and he doesn't notice it. He doesn't see it. Um, it. There are signs all over, but people don't notice them. You know, like like I'll be thinking of, you know, let's say I'll be thinking of some, you know, my friend who lives in England, and uh, I'm out on the road driving somewhere, and I'm thinking about my friend, and I'm missing my friend, and pretty soon a big, you know, semi-truck will go by with the, with the word England on the side of it. And it's just kind of fun because the universe has a great sense of humor. And it shows you, or like when, you know, you feel like you're late or you're not doing the right thing at the right time, but then everything falls into place. You have to remember, like you, you pull up to that stop sign and your birthday is on a license plate right in front of you. And that's the universe saying you are right where you are at the right time. You're, it's okay. So, so you know, what? What do you think is a uh, what do you think is a maybe a decision you've made or a moment you've had or um, something that that you've done where you know you were given that you were talking about that choice you make where your stomach feels one way versus your stomach feeling another where, where you followed your gut like what do you think is the biggest example of that and and you don't have to say it if it's in the book <laughs> some people can go to the book but what do you, what do you think in, in your own life has been where you followed your gut, or are you in the right place at the right time? And if you weren't there at that specific moment, everything would have been different. Um, I think one of the, and this, this sounds kind of crazy, and I don't talk about it a lot. That's all right. I love crazy. Yeah, it, 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 it involves a voice, actually. When um, John and I moved to New York City with a roommate in 1983, we were staying with friends until we could find an apartment. Now, we were looking for an apartment in Manhattan, and we had no idea what was a good part of town and what was a bad part of town. So I literally, you know, got up early in the morning on Wednesdays, the Village Voice would come out, and that was the day that they would list all the apartments, and the good stuff would be gone within the day, okay? So I 
got up, I circled what I just read, you know, went up and down, up and down, and circled what I looked good, what looked good, and we had about maybe six places to see that day. And uh, we were in a rental truck, and we were in Manhattan traffic, and there was this apartment on the Upper West Side that was, you know, up toward Harlem, and, and that, you know, that's scary. That's 1980s, and right. like I said, we had, we had no idea what was a good place and what was a bad place. And we had an appointment for an apartment up there, and then we also had one down by Times Square. Now, at this time of the, you know, New York City's history, Times Square was not the place you wanted to live in in the 1980s. (laughs) Um, But the Upper West Side, uh, it was right on the edge of Spanish Harlem, and that also was, you know, intimidating. And we were going through an intersection, and uh, we were going to blow off the appointment to the apartment on the Upper West Side. And I literally, this is the first time that I ever heard the, uh, I think it's called Claire Audience, where, where you actually hear somebody. And this guy in my head, in my right side of my head, screamed at me, no, no, come up and see this apartment. No, turn right, turn right. And John was literally turning left in the middle of a ton of traffic. And I, I just said, no, no, turn right, turn right. He said, I thought you said turn left. I said, no, turn right. We got to go see this other apartment. And he's like, and, you know, and he's like, well, I thought you said that was too far north. And I said, just, just, just do it. Just do it. We got to do it. We got to do it. And we went up there and we met the most amazing people. We got an apartment on the Upper West Side with a doorman and laundry. And uh, um, the, the people that uh, owned the apartment lived um, 10 floors above us. It was a furnished apartment. And it would have been gone that day. I mean, it would have been snapped up immediately. And they took a chance on some kids from Wisconsin that didn't know where they were going. Right. <laughs> and we, we uh, got a great apartment. And then... It uh, even happened when we stopped, uh, we were moving our stuff, you know, uh, and we stopped in at a friend who used to live in Madison. His name's Mark Kaufman, and he's in uh, in the Scandal video, Goodbye to You. He's the drummer. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, he lived, he lived there, and he was at Soundworks uh, Recording Studio, which was a digital, one of the only two digital studios in New York City at the time, built in the basement of uh, Studio 54 on West 54th Street. Okay. And we got to stop and say hello to him one day. And he said, come on down and check it out. You got to see this place. And we were, I was messy. I mean, we were moving and I wasn't, you know, I didn't think I should go in. And he, and, uh, he's like, no, you know, I mean, when are you going to get a chance to come in here? You better come in and check it out. As at the time it was a $3,500 a day studio. Wow. Um, people like Diana Ross and, you know, Joe Cocker and, you know, people like that. I mean, Harry Belafonte, those were the people that re- that came in and recorded and mixed there. And um, I walked down the stairs and the guy was on the phone and I looked around the studio and I said to myself, now this is the kind of job you want. You know, this is what you really want. You know, this is a place that you need to work at. And as I'm thinking this, the guy on the, on the phone who was uh, an engineer who was filling in at the desk says, no, no, the, the position hasn't been uh, filled yet. I'm sure she's interested. She'll call you back. And he hung up and I turned around and I said, do you have a job opening here? And he's like, well, yeah, we're looking for receptionists that can, you know, do billing and do phones and stuff. Uh, why? You interested? And I said, oh, yeah, I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> it took me two weeks, but I got the job. 
Oh, and wow. If, if I wouldn't have gone in the studio because I felt all grubby and messy that day, that would have been a big life changer. But I did. And I went with my instinct, and uh, I ended up getting the job, the apartment and the job. And that was all on gut instinct completely, because I really had no idea where I was going. I was terrified of New York. I, I got used to it quickly, but it was very scary when we first moved there. Well, how, I mean, so how old were you guys when you, when you went to New York City? I was 27. Okay. So, I mean, a little bit of life experience, but still, I mean, most of it, obviously, if you grew up in the Sauk City area, um, was around, I mean, the Madison area, and Madison's great, but it's not that big. Oh, yeah. No, I spent my whole life in Wisconsin, you know, moving around Wisconsin and had never lived in a big city like New York. I'd never had visited before or anything. Had no idea what I was getting into. And, and loved it. <laughs> so what, So when you worked at the studio, um, did, like, did you ever get to see anybody famous or any cool songs that were recorded there or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Um, uh, they mixed uh, Steve Winwood's uh, role with Roll With It or Roll With Me. They mixed that there. Um, Diane Ross did Missing You there, her big hit. Um, John Denver came in a couple times. He he was a really good friend of the owner. Um, Joe Cocker, I can't remember. Oh, my God. I want to say Civilized Man was mixed there. They did a lot more mixing than they did recording. Sure. Well, digital, but, you know. Yeah, it was digital, yeah. But uh, they did, like, um, the movie, I think it's called Beat Street. Uh, Harry Bell Belafonte um, produced that. That was all uh, recorded and mixed there. They even did the um, 1984 Olympics. They they mixed all the music for that. Oh. Um, it was, I mean, we had everybody in there. It was I, That was one job that I could not, literally, could not wait for the alarm to go off in the morning. <laughs> well, that, that's awesome. Did you... Now that you said in the basement of Studio Fifty Four, right? Yes. Yep. So, um, I mean, by nineteen eighty three, that was that was that place still hopping, or was it kind of at the end because the disco era was kind of faded out? Yeah, actually, when when I worked there, it was closed down, but then they did open it later on, and then it closed again. So, but when we when I worked there, um, they, it was closed. And uh, they, they built this beautiful studio um, in the basement. And uh, when I've read stories about what ha used to happen in the basement of Studio 54, right. <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't see any ghosts down well, there. But. That's what I was going to say. I mean, being in a – that obviously there was a lot of um, energy and, you know, mental energy and all these kind of things based around that hub of the disco era. So I just, if there are any feelings or you picked up anything or, you know, saw the ghost of somebody snorting Coke in the bathroom. <laughs> I didn't see that, but I mean, we, we just, it was just an incredible place to be. You know, like I said, I, um, Diana Ross worked there for two weeks, so I got to know her and, you know, Joe Cocker came in and I got to know John Denver. And does Joe Cock does Joe Cocker talk like that? Like the, uh, real in real life? <laughs> Yes, he uh, he was drinking at the time, and uh, he came down the stairs one day with a Heineken. He had to have Heineken, you know, we stocked up when he came in. Um, he had a Heineken in each hand, and we kind of met on the stairway. So he did a jig around me and sang me a little song using my name, Susie. So he was like, Susie, 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 and he did a little dance around me. So it was, it was very cute. 
Oh, that's great. Not everybody gets a personal Joe Cocker performance. No, not everybody, um, but, but I did. And, and <laughs> how long were you guys in New York City? Um, almost three years. Yeah, almost three years. And then I, I actually had a dental thing that uh, went wrong with a root canal that caused nerve damage, and that's oh. why I moved home. Otherwise, I, I was determined to never leave New York, and now I go back for the book expos and uh, at the end of May for my books and stuff, and uh, I love New York City. I mean, it's just, to me, when I go there, I don't sleep because uh, that's wasting time. <laughs> right. There's so, I mean, there's so much to do, and there's so many people. And um, Did you ever have any paranormal experiences while you guys were out there? Um, not that, you know, I had prophetic dreams again. I had very vivid dreams when I was in New York and I think it was because of the energy, but, um, mostly, you know, real life, scary stuff, not paranormal. Fair enough. Fair enough. (laughs) You know, people being shot in the subway and, you know, people being mugged right in front of you. And, uh, it was, uh, the 1980s. I call, I call that the wild west days of New York. It's it certainly was a different time. I mean, it really was when you'd go visit. I remember visiting when I was a kid a few times. And going now as compared to going 30 years ago, it's, it's a completely different experience. And, and like you said, Times Square. I mean, Times Square used to be porno theaters. It wasn't this family friendly and somebody's dressed like Mickey Mouse and things. I mean, it is different. Oh, yeah. No, it's totally a different city. I mean, believe me, it's just, yeah, it's, it, and, uh, you know, sadly, and on the anniversary of 9-11, oh, um, the, yes. the city is completely different after that happened. I mean, I when I went back in 2003, I was stunned by, you know, people, I, I was just out there last year, and I mean, people in the subway, they're talking, they're partying with each other. Uh, there was a girl sleeping with jewelry in a person or lap. And in 1980, you know, she not only would have woke up without all her stuff, but she might not have woken up. Right. And uh, people are, it's so different. It's just, a, it's a different city. It, it, 9-11, how hor- horrifying that day was, completely changed the city of New York. I, I, uh, I agree with you a lot there. Now, yeah. now, now one last question. Um, I know I've kept you over time, so thank you for hanging, Susan. Oh, no, anytime, anytime, Mike. But one last question. So what what's the biggest thing that you've dreamed of that's come true? Like, so in, in your dreams, what kind of, what clairvoyant or precognitive dream have you had that um, you're like, the, the biggest thing you think that you're, that you're, to yourself, you're like, yeah, that came, I dreamed that and that came true. I can't, I can't deny that. I can't even doubt it. Okay, that I, I have a perfect story for that. Great. When I see ACDC in my dreams, it, whether it's one member or all of them, I write it down, and it always manifests. It sometimes is years out, but they always manifest. And I wrote in my dream journal back in, I believe, 2005, <clears throat> sorry, that I was uh, at an outdoor stadium I was talking to some of the band and we were laughing at the tour manager because he was arguing with a roadie in Italian. So I was in Italy 
and I always okay. wanted to see them play in Europe. I mean, I used to be so jealous when I saw like the big stage set up with the big horns on, you know, and, and how many people, and I thought, oh, you know, I'd never been to Europe before, and I just, I, I always thought that was like at the top 10 of my list of what I wanted to do. Well, in 2010, um, I got an email early in the year, an email from uh, a fan in Italy that says uh, to me, ACDC's playing in my home, you know, hometown of Udine, which is in northern Italy, um, on May 19th, 2010, would you come here for a book signing? And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to come there for a book signing, but I don't, I don't make that kind of money. And, right. And uh, he said, well, let me, you know, I don't either. He said, but let me do, let me see what I can do. And Shout out to Mario Ramadi, who is still a wonderful friend of mine. He went to the bookstore. He cleared the book signing. They loved it. They thought it would be a great idea. And he went to the promoters. They loved it. They thought it would be a great idea, but they, again, did not have the funds to do this. Well, one of the kids, we call him St. Lou. He was in his 20s at the time. He went to the Northern uh, Tourism Bureau of Italy and talked to the lieutenant governor about bringing over this author to do a signing the day before ACDC played and make a big deal out of it. And, you know, because ACDC on their Black Ice tour only played one city in Italy. And I found out later Italy has a lot of, like, sound restrictions and just lots of things. And and they were flying in and out of Vienna that summer uh, toward the end of the Black Ice tour. So they picked Udine, to play in. It was the only city in Italy. So, so they were really, you know, like bragging it up. Like, you know, we're so cool that, you know, ACDC is playing here. Well, sure enough, they paid for me. The tour, the, the Bureau of Tourism of Northern Italy paid my airfare, my hotel, all my food. And I had an entire week in Italy, saw the band play live, did radio, TV, or not TV, but uh, newspaper articles, and just, I had a blast, and I saw them on a bright, sunny day in Italy, exactly like what my dream showed me five years earlier. That's an awesome story. I want to have dreams like that, Susan. Uh, well, like I said, every time I see ACDC in my dreams, I write it down, because it, it will manifest. And that's why I think, you know, I I do have a past life with Angus and Malcolm. I, I honestly believe that we were related in another life because they, they've always treated me like family from the, the first day I met them. And they still do. Well, and your, and your career has been very much connected to them. Yes. Oh, God, that they made my career. They made my career. I mean, I wouldn't have a career without ACDC. I honestly don't think I would. So I, I give them all the credit. They, they are the talented ones. <laughs> Well, I was lucky enough to be there. Well, you're certainly talented too. You got five books out, and the latest book is The Secrets of the Universe, Universal Laws, Past Lives, Ghost Adventures, and more. And people can get that at susanmacino.com. Where else can they get it at? And they can get it at Amazon. On Amazon, it's in paperback and on Kindle. Okay, so you can get it. You don't have to go to the bookstore, and you don't have to wait for it. You can get it from your Kindle next oh, time. Yeah. You, next time you go to it right away and uh if you go to my website um all five books are on there and my sixth book will be out next spring the acdc faq book everything you wanted to know about the world's true rock and roll band awesome well i'll look forward to reading it when it comes out and thank you so much for your time susan it's been a lot of fun um 
there's probably about a hundred more things we could talk about. And so I'm going to save that and we'll have to do another episode soon. I would love to. Thank you so much, Mike. And anytime, call me anytime, as Bond would say. Show notes for today's podcast can be found at othersidepodcast.com slash five. Since today's interview with Susan covered a lot more spooky memories from the 70s and 80s, here's Sunspot's most 70s classic rock sounding track, Grand Guignol. You love the drama.
you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side.